This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. We spend a lot of time talking about SEC enforcement here on the Insecurities Podcast. And at the start of the year, we think it's helpful to take stock of what's happening within the Division of Enforcement and what might be on the horizon. Back in October 2017, then newly appointed Co-Director of Enforcement Stephanie Avakian said the following in a speech regarding the SEC's Enforcement Division's initiatives. Quote, so what are our priorities? As all of you know, enforcement has a very broad mandate. We cover a lot of ground across the securities markets. One need only look at our various units, task forces, and working groups, as well as the cases we bring to get a sense of our landscape. At a high level, our greatest priorities and where we allocate our limited resources do not really change over time, and nor should they. We are always going to be focused on retail investors. These are often the most vulnerable market participants who are in need of our protection. We are also always going to be focused on cyber-related issues, which are only continuing to increase in number and impact. Finally, we are always going to be focused on issues raised by the conduct of investment advisors, broker-dealers, and other registrants, on financial fraud and disclosure issues involving public companies, and on insider trading. And that leads to the next questions. Are we allocating our resources in the best possible way to address those priorities? Is there something we should change? End quote. We're fortunate to have Stephanie Avakian, now chair of Wilmer Hale's Securities and Financial Services Department, help us answer those questions, both from the perspective of her time as the co-director of the Division of Enforcement and in how she sees the current enforcement division going forward, today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. You know, I always like these episodes at the beginning of the year where we kind of take a moment to think about what we've seen over the last year and kind of peek around the corner and try to figure out what might be on the horizon for, you know, some of our clients and some of the folks who may be listening into the podcast. Uh, Couldn't ask for a better guest than what we have today to help us peek around the corner. That's right. I think we're also, this being our third year now, Kurt, of the podcast, we are two for two. All of our predictions on our early year episodes have been accurate to date. So uh, that sterling reputation hopefully continues today. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let you go back and check the stats on that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm not as brave as you are. Let me do a little bit of bio here for for our excellent guest. Um, for those of you who don't know, although I'm sure if you're tuning into this podcast, you know exactly who Stephanie Avakian is. As Chris mentioned, she is currently the chair of Wilmer Hale's Securities and Financial Services Department, where she helps clients address the enforcement, governance, and compliance issues presented in today's markets. Of course, our listeners will know that she was previously the director and co-director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement. Before becoming director, Stephanie worked in private practice and at the SEC, including as counsel to former Commissioner Paul Carey 
and as a branch chief and staff attorney in the Division of Enforcement. In 2020, Stephanie left the SEC to return to private practice at Wilmer Hale. Stephanie had a number of accomplishments during her time as director and co-director of the Division of Enforcement. She oversaw the division's approximately 1,400 professionals and staff. And during her four years leading the division, the SEC brought more than 3,000 enforcement actions, obtained judgments and orders for more than $17 billion in penalties and disgorgement, and returned approximately $3.6 billion to harmed investors. Those matters covered a range of misconduct or alleged misconduct, including insider trading, financial fraud and disclosure violations, auditor and accounting issues, market structure, asset management, and of course, the FCPA. Um, I I think that's probably enough. I mean, the background goes on and on. It's a very impressive resume. But Stephanie, we are excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for making some time to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Excellent. Well, we're going to jump right into it uh, with a little bit of looking back and looking forward. There have been a number of changes since you left the SEC a short time ago, including a new chair coming on last summer, as well as a new director of enforcement last fall. From an enforcement perspective, how have you observed any noteworthy changes at the SEC, noting these new appointments? That's a great question. I mean, look, there are changes in leadership are noteworthy, right? leadership's going to set the direction of the agency. I mean, I should take a step back and say, I've always believed this and I continue to believe it, that over time, the Division of Enforcement, the whole commission, frankly, but the Division of Enforcement is made up of career staff, right? And so, and these are people that are, you know, they're there through administration to administration. And so I I don't generally believe that you can expect to see wild pendulum swings as a result of change in leadership, but we do see changes, right? And so, you know, in terms of what's noteworthy, I mean, at a high level, certainly change in leadership. Chairman Gensler has put his own stamp on the place. He's, I, I think he's really filled all of his senior roles across the division, including division director positions, office head positions. We saw some new appointments even yesterday, I think, and his own office, you know, his own counsel and, and those positions. And that, that all says something, you know, about where he plans to go. I do think it's noteworthy that the vast majority of his most senior positions are people from academia and not industry. We'll see what they focus on and what they deem important. The enforcement division is different in that regard, right? The new enforcement director, uh, who's not so new anymore, Gerbeer Graywall, um, who's now been there probably half a year or close to half a year, is a longtime prosecutor. He's been, you know, he was most recently, obviously, the attorney general for the state of New Jersey. And, you know, before that served as a federal prosecutor in two districts. He served as a county prosecutor. And so he's really got a very long history as a prosecutor and as a very thoughtful lawyer. You know, I I think he has been and we will see him continue to be a very strong leader for the division. You know, what's noteworthy? What are noteworthy changes? I don't, you know, hasn't really been long enough to see changes. I think what we look at, right, is what is what are they telling us out of the division? And Gerbeer, to his credit, has been doing a fair amount of public speaking in the last couple months, which I think is great. I think it's important for people who lead, you know, important divisions at the SEC and across the government to go out and tell us what they think and what they're focused on and, and what's important to them. And so, you know, what has Gerbeer been talking about? I put it in some broad categories. He has given a number of, of sets of remarks, both speeches, you know, but also he's done a lot of um, 
speaking, uh, you know, on panels and the like. You know, he's spoken a lot about corporate responsibility and the expectations that the SEC and the Division of Enforcement have on corporations. I think one of the things that's been interesting that he's talked about is this notion of proactive compliance and not just, you know, sort of making the point of saying, it's not just about checking all the boxes and saying you have policies and procedures to address the issues. It's about, as a business, taking a step back and assessing your business, the risks to your business, and adapting your compliance policies and procedures to meet those risks. And I, I think that's, you know, he's telling corporate America something there. You know, he's also talked about timely disclosure, obviously has talked about things like preservation, particularly in the course of investigations. And that's, you know, look, the SEC brought a, a big case um, against a financial institution in the last couple, in the last month or so um, for failing to retain text messages that happened off of regular, off-channel communications, right? They weren't on the company's regular email system um, or text system. And, and that's obviously been a big thing. Um, so he's talked about, you know, the requirement to preserve records, particularly when there's a government investigation. So so that's what I'd say, you know, he's sort of talked about big picture in the corporate context. He's also talked about cooperation for corporations, um, which I'll come back to in a second, because I kind of put that under a second heading uh, or topic that he's been talking about, which I, I think is going to be an interesting one to watch and see how it develops. So when we talk about changes, I don't know if it's a change. We'll see over time. But one of the things he's talked about and his deputy, Sanjay Wadwa, has talked about is this notion of doing more to empower the staff. And what Gerbeer has said, at least he means in part by that, is pushing more substantive decision making down to the staff. And some of the examples I think we've seen him talk about are things like evaluation of cooperation by companies, right? And how that cooperation will be credited in the context of a resolution. And he has said, frontline staff, regional office supervisors are in the best position to evaluate the nature and quality of the cooperation. Similarly, he's talked about the Wells process and he's talked about defense lawyers should not in all circumstances expect to get a front office Wells meeting. You should not necessarily assume you were going to get a Wells meeting with the director with the deputy director, we think that uh, frontline staff are often in the better position to assess and evaluate the recommendations that go to the commission. So we see this coming up in a couple of places. So I think that's an area to watch. Um, and then I say the other big thing he has talked about is penalties. And and these these themes keep coming back to court cases against companies um, or entities. And so he's talked about penalties. And he's talked in particular about looking at issues like recidivism when determining what a penalty recommendation to the commission ought to be. I think we don't know what that means yet, right? Like is recidivism, you have a long regulatory history or is recidivism, you have done this same thing before? Is it something in the middle? I don't think we really know, but he has talked about the notion that, you know, it may be that in some cases prior penalties have not been enough to deter future conduct or misconduct. So those are, um, are they changes? I don't know. I think we're going to all sit back and we're going to see how it unfolds. Um, we're going to see it through the enforcement actions. Yeah, yeah I think some of those um, some of those changes or some of the stylistic notes that, that, that Gabriel Graywall has sounded over the last couple of months have been met with different levels of enthusiasm from the defense bar. I think the, the comments around the Wells meetings in particular caused some collective head scratching. Um, but we'll see we'll see how it plays out. So uh, those are some 
possible changes we'll see relating to procedure um, cooperation credit or what what the staff thinks is cooperation uh, and, and potentially corporate penalties. But let's talk a little bit about the enforcement actions. I mean, as I mentioned, we're always trying to look down the road and say, you know, what might be coming uh, that we need to pay attention to. I would be interested to hear what you think might be some enforcement priorities. What are going to be some of the cases we've seen? Um, are they going to recluster for programmatic or other reasons under Chair Gensler and Director Graywall? Great question. Don't know. I'll give you my predictions. Um, <laughs> Short and, and sweet. Look, we love it. Yeah, exactly. Love it. <laughs> he's also, next question, please. Yeah. He's also, he's talked about individual accountability, but every director has talked about individual accountability. And I think over time, the metrics around individual accountability have stayed roughly the same. There's not a lot of change in that blip. I would say on the whole, if you look over the last two, three, four, five, six, seven years, it's probably fluctuated pretty close to 70% of cases include charges against individuals. So, I, you know, I, I'm not sure we'll see a change in the numbers. We may see a change in the remedies. We may see tougher remedies, greater amounts of time out, you know, anything like that. But in terms of what kinds of cases, what are the priorities? I do think for this administration, climate and ESG is a big priority. You know, obviously it's on the rulemaking agenda. I, I think Chairman Gensler has sort of signaled that it should be any day now that we see some rulemaking proposals in this regard. But look, back in a year ago now, I guess, back in last February, the Enforcement Division created this Climate ESG Task Force of roughly two dozen people. As, as best I can tell from what's public, they've not brought any cases yet. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing them over the next year, right? The average case takes, you know, roughly two years to bring. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see that. And I think anecdotally, my sense is that they certainly have investigations that, you know, that focus on these areas. So I, I would expect to see, even though there is going to be rulemaking, people expected to have prescriptive disclosure requirements. When Melissa Hodgman was the acting director of enforcement, she said publicly, we are going to enforce the laws we have on the books. And I think I can totally envision the, the division recommending, you know, cases involving um, misstatements, for example, of, you know, we said we were doing this green thing. We said we were doing this ESG investment. And then they look behind it and take the position that's not really what it is. It was some sort of a, you know, material misstatement. So that wouldn't surprise me at all to see cases in that regard. I think cybersecurity and disclosures around the same, we're going to see more of. Chairman just spoke about that at a conference a week or so ago. I think we're going to see it on a bunch of fronts, right? I think we're likely to continue to see cases in the registrant and population, right? Reg SP violations, things like that. But I think the real news will be on what we continue to see in the public company space, Chairman has it on his reg flex agenda, so at least it seems like there's going to be rulemaking, probably prescriptive disclosure requirements around breaches and ransomware payments and stuff, but remains to be seen. But the commission did bring, you know, some cyber disclosure cases against public companies a few months ago, maybe August, September-ish. And I viewed those as message cases, particularly there were two. One of them um, charged misstatements. You know, you said it may be a thing and it will you know, they took the position that it actually was the thing and you should have said that. Um, the other one was a violation of the disclosure controls provision, not a fraud case. I view that as interesting because, uh, you know, this was not a case where the commission looked at the disclosure and said it was wrong or it was misleading or it was omitting something. 
Instead, they said, your disclosure controls and procedures were not reasonably designed such that the appropriate information made its way up to the decision makers. That's me paraphrasing, but the language they used in the order really came from the commission's guidance on this um, stuff. And so, you know, I, I just view stuff like that as a message to the industry that, you know, we're, we're really looking at this and we're going to take action here. I think we're going to see stuff in the market structure space. I mean, look, the commission's very focused on things like payment for order flow and gamification, best X, digital engagement. Whether that's enforcement versus policy side stuff, that I can't really predict. But I think we're going to see a lot more activity. The chairman's spoken very publicly about these issues. Digital asset space is obviously going to continue to be an area to watch. You know, they just brought um, what they call term the first DeFi case. There have been some others in recent weeks. I, I assume there are more on the horizon. And I think that they will... You know, certainly the pattern has been when I was there and since I've been there, the pattern has been to sort of continue to bring cases that send messages and that sort of go to the next thing. Right. Like first it's ICOs, then it's the exchanges, then, you know, and so I think sort of making a point of saying the first DeFi case is kind of a further indication of that. So I think we'll see more stuff like that. And then look like any commission, they're going to have to deal with what I'd call episodic stuff, like SPACs, I put in that category, right? Like for us, it was ICOs. For them, I think it's SPACs. There's probably going to be other stuff. And we'll see stuff on that. I, I think very short term, you know, look, the there's been lots of press around these text messaging cases and there being a sweep. And so I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if that's sort of a closer term thing that we end up seeing more of, but, you know, all remains to be seen. Yeah, it's an interesting point about looking at first of their kind cases as as sort of statement cases or, or signals to the market or to regulated persons and entities. You know, another place that you sometimes look to get those kind of signals is the annual enforcement report. And you see things like we saw last year where they said we covered the waterfront. We did crypto. We did SPACs. We did digital assets, right? It just kind of goes on and on, you know, and sprinkled in the usual statistics about the number of actions and the amount disgorged and the penalties, et cetera. We won't make you talk about that, uh, Stephanie, but um, <laughs> I wonder what you thought about last year's annual report. I mean, to me, it was sort of like a glorified press release, but I wonder if you think there's anything we can glean from the the report as it, as it was. I mean, I'm not sure that there's anything in particular to glean from it. I'm glad they put the statistics out the way they did, right? I mean, I know you said it was sort of a glorified press release, um, but in you know in, in the past, there have been things that looked more like press releases, right? If I go back years and years, and this sort of presented all the statistics, right? And you can form your own judgments about what they mean. It certainly was different from the one Steve and I did, my, my partner Steve Pekin and I did um, when we were co-directors. But we, look, we wanted to do an annual report. We created the annual report. I think it's up to future directors to decide if they want to provide that kind of text and narrative. I will say, you know, the reason we did it, there are a lot of reasons to do it. I mean, I think we were huge believers in the notion of transparency about the statistics. You know, I will say this, the report is incredibly difficult to put together <laughs> um, and I'm takes sure. a really long time and takes a lot of personal time of the director to actually, mm -hmm. at least for us, to actually write it. But, you know, for us, it was important for people to understand the context around the numbers. And so 
Look, I've given a thousand public remarks, as you guys know, uh, that I think judging an enforcement program based on statistics is kind of BS. Like that's not that's not how you're ever going to assess the effectiveness of an enforcement program, particularly, you know, one like this, where it's not like, you know, the universe of of misconduct and you know how much of it you're getting. Right. So like if you take a step back and look at a police department, right, they know how many murders there were. Now, how many are we solving? And now how many, you know, next year are there fewer than last year? Right. You know what you're measuring against. This is not an industry where you know what you're measuring against, right? And so you have to really take a step back and say, as you said, you quoted me in the beginning, I was sitting there thinking like, I mean, whether I was right or whether I was wrong, it stood the test of time in my own mind for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Because I actually still believe that those are the things that are important is taking a step back and saying, are we changing behavior? Are we impacting behavior? Are people acting differently as a result? Are investors protected? all those things. And that was in large part why Steve and I really sat down and wrote that and wrote that annual report and try to provide information on how we thought about enforcement, what our priorities were, what the challenges were that the enforcement division was facing because they changed over time. And frankly, you know, if I'm being completely honest, I think we were pretty frustrated with how the press and others were characterizing our enforcement program. And it it was a strong program. And I think, you know, certainly we suffered from the notion that there was a public narrative that that our enforcement program was not going to be as tough as prior ones or as tough as it could be. And people tried to use statistics in a way to, you know, to to support that narrative. And I think, you know, we thought it was very important to get the statistics out there so the public and others, including our overseers on the Hill and elsewhere, really could take a step back and look at the numbers on their own and make their own assessments and then also do it with the context and and saying like, okay, here's how they're thinking about it. Here's what they think is important and here's how they're directing their resources and here are the challenges they're facing. Whether it changed the public narrative or not, I, I don't know, you know, when the numbers were lower than the prior year, that was the headline. When the numbers were higher than the prior year, the headline was something else. So, you know, I, I'm a little um, jaded where that's concerned, you know, and 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 even when the numbers were super spectacular, you know, when you talk about context, like if I look back at 2019, right, 2019 was like, at that time, not it, we actually beat it the next year, but at that time, highest monetary remedies the commission had ever ordered, almost the highest number of cases the commission ever brought in a single year. Um, You know, all kinds of great metrics. And there'd been a 35-day government shutdown, and we had 150 fewer people than we did two years before or three years before when those records had last been set. And we gave all that context and nobody was really saying, hey, wow, great job. (laughs) Nobody was saying great job. And that's okay. But that's the point for the context. And I'm glad that they're continuing to publish the numbers. And look, you know, there were some articles saying that the numbers were lower this year. It's a transition year. The numbers are going to be lower in a transition year. They just they just are. The functions of the commission slow down. And so I don't think there's anything to be gleaned by that either. So very, very long answer, um, you know, (laughs) exercising my own demons um, on this issue. Um, But I I really, I felt very, very protective of the enforcement division and the work that the division was doing. And and Steve did too. 
the chairman did too. And I think that really is in large part what drove the desire to put a lot of information into the public realm about what we were doing, the challenges we were facing, and the successes really that the program was having. I mean, just wildly successful um, and still, you know, had been, was, and still is. And, and I think it's important for whoever your constituency is. I mean, I think it's, you know, the taxpayers, but it's also investors and it's the public companies and the registrants, you know, that you're regulating and it's the overseers on the Hill and elsewhere um, who really should see, you know, the details about what you're doing. Stephanie, not all of the challenges that were overcome by the commission when you were there received only negative press. Uh, one of the biggest challenges in your last year, uh, and uh, you know, alongside your co-director of enforcement, Steve Peakin, you've referenced, you, you two were managing the enforcement division through the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. That positive press I'm referencing was received by former Chair Jay Clayton when he noted your ability to successfully pivot in the face of these pandemic challenges. He said, quote, Enforcement's ability to root out potential misconduct amid the COVID-19 pandemic, while also continuing its existing caseload, all in a virtual work environment, is a fitting testament to her leadership, expertise, and commitment to our mission, end quote. Uh, sounds almost as glowing as some of those press reports about your uh, the enforcement <laughs> report. But he is uh, a brilliant chairman. That's right. Yes, <laughs> if only in those few few seconds of speech. Uh, I'd love to hear your take on that response to the pandemic, and if some of the changes that you know we're all living with now are are here to stay with the division of enforcement as well. Yeah, I mean it's you know crazy looking back at it, right? But we all went through it. We all know how crazy it was. You know, look, Steve and I really uh, had to take a step back and and say, everybody went home, right? And you think it's for two weeks. You have no idea for how long. Mm -hmm. And we were very lucky that the commission's infrastructure worked from day one. So, you know, even having thousands of people working from home, the system stood up to it. We were lucky and, and fortunate that we were ready for it from an IT standpoint. Um, I mean, I had never used like my own video conferencing on a computer mm -hmm. before. So, you know, there were some personal challenges, <laughs> but, uh, but we got there. But the one thing Steve and I sort of took a step back, really the first day we were sent home, because the first day one of our offices in the home office got sent home before others because there was a case or something, you know, and so kind of unprepared um, in some ways. And we just said, we got to communicate. We just have to communicate. And that, I think that was the first and biggest thing that we really did was make sure that we communicated with the staff consistently what we knew. We told them what we didn't know and what we did know. And when we knew more, we'll tell you more, you know, because people were constantly worried about when are we going back? When are we going back? You know, and is it going to be too soon? And so we really stayed in touch that way. I think the other thing that enabled us to like, like when we talk about sort of first principles that enabled us to lead through this was our own view and, and certainly, and first and foremost, the chairman's view that the most important thing was everyone's health and safety. And that is what he wanted everyone to focus on. And that is what Steve and I told everyone they needed to focus on. And I think people, I, I just think that has a calming effect to some degree in a very anxiety ridden time, right? Like, knowing I'm not going to have to sacrifice my health or the health of my family or anything else for work today, I think put people at ease. Um, so I, I think those are sort of first principles. 
But then it was really about helping people. Once we knew, you know, after the first week or two, once we knew um, this is going to be life for some time, how do we move our stuff forward? And, and there were sort of two things, right? One is, how do we move our stuff forward? And the other is, what do we do in response to this coronavirus stuff, right? Like from an investor protection standpoint, because, you know, like never let a good crisis go to waste. I mean, people were coming out of the woodwork with like, you know, investments things, um, you know, and companies that purportedly had all kinds of testing ability, PPE availability, you know, all this stuff. So we, we stood up a coronavirus task force in the division. It was a volunteer task force. Tons of people volunteered for it, came up with lots of stuff we can go proactively do. One of the things the division did immediately was a, a bunch of trading suspensions in the first two months, which I think, I think acting quickly on the trading suspension front, we really saw a drop off you know, in these public companies that were purporting to have some kind of COVID-related technology or offering of some sort. And so I think that made a big difference. Look, we made public statements. Steve and I made a market integrity statement, launched lots of investigations um, that, that I would say were COVID-related in some form or another, got tons of tips, complaints, and referrals related to stuff. And so on the one hand, you had like sort of this pivot by some really large number of people to focus on COVID-related stuff to protect investors. And then on the other hand, you had all the existing investigations. And that, you know, that was very organic in figuring out stuff. Steve and I started having a weekly town hall with the whole division, which is like more than a thousand people, right? Like it's a huge town hall. But we did it every week and we took questions in advance and we tried to answer them all, you know, on the call. We tried to address important topics, things like, how do you send a subpoena remotely? How do I FedEx something? How do I get whatever technology? These things were just every day, you know, being presented with issues and trying to come up with solutions. And if we didn't have a solution, we would at least tell people this is an issue and, you know, we're trying to figure it out. So I, I do think the town halls made a big difference just in keeping people connected, keeping people informed. I mean, that took a village. You know, there were tons of people working on these solutions litigators working on litigation solutions, investigators working on investigative solutions, you know, tech people working on tech solutions and and even today, you know, and so to answer where you ended with like what's going to stick around? I don't know. I hope some of it does. I mean, God, I hope some of at some point everybody's back in the office. Yeah. You know, certainly, you know, at my firm people are I go in every day. Some people are here. You know, there will be a time when we're all back, but um, it feels different when you're all together. You know, the camaraderie is different. The experience is different. So I do hope that comes back. But I, I think a lot of remote stuff is here, here to stay. I, if I were a client, I would demand it. You know, I mean, think of all the money clients are saving by not having their law firms flying all over the country for, you know, a one hour meeting. I mean, there are lots of things that are better in person. I, I am a believer that interviews are better in person. Testimony is better in person for both sides. Um, I just think you get more out of a lot of things, but there are a lot of meetings that don't have to be in person. I'll be interested to see when like the panel circuit starts back up. I've done a couple in-person panels, but it was during those little lulls in the COVID world where it felt like everybody was coming back out again right before we all went back into hiding. <laughs> um, so I think some of this, I think some of the stuff 
will stick around. You talked, Stephanie, a lot about how important that in-person contact is. For Kurt, it was all about the airline miles. So I know he's been a little <laughs> bit, yeah. uh, well, those family vacations now come with a price based on uh, not That's having right. to fly all around the world, but you know, to, to each their own, I guess. Yeah, exactly right. You know, that that's actually a perfect segue. It's almost like we planned it uh, to the next thing we want to talk about. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, how the how the pandemic uh, changed things for the SEC. We've talked about what we think some of the priorities are going to be for the SEC. And now we want to talk about how they intersect, um, where there might be some priority areas for regulated entities or maybe some of our clients um, that also may be impacted by the the pandemic or some of the the ongoing effects of the pandemic. So I think, Chris, first, we're going to talk a little bit about cybersecurity. You got it. As an accountant who has to think about cybersecurity, like we've talked about in prior episodes, Kurt, I'm always now nervous. <laughs> but <laughs> Stephanie, you spoke a little bit about the cyber unit uh, in some of your remarks earlier in the podcast. And it was created as a specialized unit to focus on three areas. I'm not going to quiz you on exactly what those areas are, Stephanie. I'll read them back to you. Cases where cyber-related misconduct is used to gain some sort of unlawful market advantage, hacking and and trading on that hacking information or or manipulating that based on hacking. Uh, The second being cases involving failures by registered entities to take appropriate steps to safeguard information or ensure their system integrity, Reg SP, SID, or SCI issues. And then the third being cases where there may be a cyber-related disclosure failure by a public company. So that's obviously been a, a maturation process, both for the cyber unit itself and for the market and, and our world at large. Uh, how have you seen any shift in focus in the cybersecurity uh, mission of the SEC and the Division of Enforcement? I actually think this on the cybersecurity front, for the most part, it seems to be along the lines that you just described. Um, I, I think that sort of covers what the SEC Enforcement Division's interest is, you know, or or regulatory interest, I should say, is is in those issues. Um, you know, at least so far, you know, the SEC does not regulate for public companies, for example, the substance of their cybersecurity procedures, right? Just disclosure. Um, but for registrants, Reg SP applies, Reg SID, um, SCI for a limited number of entities. Um, and so, and that remains the same. I mean, I think, you know, uh, some of those things, primary, I shouldn't say primary, a piece of responsibility belongs to the division of exams. Um, and then, you know, a piece in terms of enforcement belongs to the division of enforcement. In what cyber areas do you think the division is going to focus on going forward, Stephanie? I think it's, I would expect to see more of the same generally, you know, like I mentioned the disclosure controls and procedures case earlier, might there be more on that front? Don't know. Um, but you know, I think that's an interesting thing to keep an eye out for. Um, and I think that once, you know, the chairman's reg flex, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier that cybersecurity disclosure issues are on the chairman's reg flex agenda. So I think if we see a rule proposal, you know, in that regard, vis-a-vis public companies, you know, that'll be interesting. Enforcement will obviously have an interest in that. But I'd expect to see more cases or more focus by the enforcement division, whether or not it turns into cases, but certainly on the investigations side, you know, looks at the disclosure issues. And I think 
you know, we'll see, we'll continue to see activity on the Reg SP front. Back in the fall, the SEC brought three Reg SP cases together, you know, in a bundle, which is clearly designed to send a message um, to registrants. And so I, I think that's an area where we will continue to see cases. You know, those cases are often identified by the Division of Exams in the first instance, um, but not always. And so I think we'll continue, you know, to see stuff there. I mean, the staff has really developed a lot of expertise around these issues, certainly in the, you know, account takeover space and things like that. There's a lot of expertise um, developed, you know, in both the market abuse unit and the cyber unit over time. And I think, you know, those account intrusion cases, I, I have no reason to believe that that they're on the downswing, right? I mean, it's it feels like the kind of thing that just gets worse over time, not better. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, SEC activity there. I mean, often that's criminal. So it just sort of depends, you know, where those investigations lead. I think that's also a reflection of the awareness, uh, right, and that that kind of growing number or that maybe even just growing fear. You know, as as a consultant, I know a lot of clients out there are looking for that assessment or that test of their their IT environment in today's age, uh, you know, and especially as these cases are brought understanding the implications of them and and trying to implement what they can uh, to best combat any any issues. The other thing we want to talk about, right, we, we shared some of the IT struggles at the SEC as well as successes as everyone went remote. That, that new uh, acronym that has entered our lexicon, WFH, uh, working from home, which used to be kind of the uh, you know, the oddball day where you're doubting if right. your colleague was actually paying attention or not to now kind of a standing office status. Uh, so besides the uh, Zoom lawyer who turned into a cat or other Zoom bomb type uh, working from home issues, how do you see some of these cyber risks exacerbated when we're all disparate and, and in our home offices? I mean, I have to believe that once you introduce Things like home computer networks and like unsecure, or maybe secure, but like personally secure Wi-Fi and stuff. I've got to believe that that substantially exacerbates the risks. You know, even things like calls to IT support and things like that, where like all those places where there's a potential opportunity for someone to impersonate someone else, right? Or an opportunity for something to go wrong, they have to increase, right? Like if you've got 5,000 people, 10,000, 20,000 people more working from home, you're going to have way more calls to the IT department. You know, are there more opportunities for somebody who's impersonating someone else to get credentials to go unnoticed? I don't know. I got to think that like, you know, same thing with the phishing opportunities and all those things, like just seems like greater chances of things going wrong. We always see those commercials where, you know, someone is working diligently from the Starbucks Wi-Fi and there's that guy in the corner with the little device, right, or whatever it might be to to scare us into buying their VPN service or, or whatever. Exactly. So I think that, like I said, the awareness is now out there. Uh, you know, all, all of our firms, I'm sure, Kurt, you're in a similar boat, uh, you know, have those VPN solutions or those IT uh, checks to make sure our home environments are there. But it's, it's, a, it's a brave new world and we're learning as we go here. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I think the risks that come from working from home exist not only with respect to cybersecurity, but also insider trading, which is what we want to talk about next. Uh, There have been some interesting insider trading cases already in uh, Director Graywall's time at the SEC. We're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. But first, let's let's stick with this work from home 
idea because I think insider trading, again, is something that is potentially impacted by people being at home and having access to information, whether or not, you know, in the office or around their peers. Uh, I think that you and, and Steve Pekin felt the same thing. You gave a joint statement in March of 2020 where you talked about this and uh, market integrity was, uh, was the theme of the statement. But you said, in these dynamic circumstances, corporate insiders are regularly learning new material non-public information that may hold an even greater value than under normal circumstances. This may particularly be the case if earnings reports or required SEC disclosure filings are delayed due to COVID-19. Given these unique circumstances, a greater number of people may have access to MNPI than in less challenging times. Those with such access, including, for example, directors, officers, employees, and consultants, and other outside professionals, should be mindful of their obligations to keep this information confidential and comply with the prohibitions on illegal securities trading. I'd be interested to hear if you think that some of those fears actually played out and, and how or where, and if it's sort of a, a lingering concern that, that we need to think about or the SEC might be thinking about. That's a great question. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a circumstance where it's played out, but I can't, I mean, certainly the commission's brought, you know, COVID-related disclosure cases yeah. and fraud cases and other stuff. Um, I can't think of a case the SEC's brought on like insider trading that has come from this kind of circumstance, but I wouldn't mm -hmm. rule it out. But I definitely, I, I do think it's still an issue with work from home. I mean, just just think about it. If you're in a public company or or anywhere, you know, and and you're home, a couple things, right? You might be on the video talking, not using headphones, you know, but but sort of, or you're using headphones, and at least other people in your house can hear one side of a conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, there are board meetings people are doing from home. I mean, all kinds of highly um, confidential information that. You know, think about it. Previously, you would have had in a boardroom with numbered documents that get taken back away from you at the end of the meeting or, you know, all sorts of things around confidentiality where, you know, you've got to change those processes. Um, and, and, you know, look, companies, I think, rose to the occasion, right? Making things available yeah. online, perhaps making them in a very secure boardroom online for a limited amount of time. And, you know, people... The companies have done lots of stuff, but it doesn't change the fact people are home. They probably have printed documents at home that they didn't, you know, wouldn't have had two years ago. Um, you've, you know, you've got your email open, all kinds of things, potential risks, right? You live with a couple of roommates, you've got people visiting, you've got, you just don't know, you know, someone you've got, someone there working on something in your house, you know, who's not usually there. So I, I just think that the opportunities to, you know, for being overheard, for stuff being seen, they're just greater. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, at the time, I remember wondering if if the statement was sort of a reaction to some of to some of the retail trading. I'll I'll say that we were seeing at the time, right? It felt like everybody was was signing up for one of these um, trading applications or using an online broker. And it's like, wow, all of a sudden people are trading in their free time and they can tap into their networks <laughs> yeah. at home. Like this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, Reddit but is not right. a locked site on the home network, right? So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we, we haven't, we haven't seen those cases. So I don't know, maybe the statement did the trick. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it did. Yeah. We did a couple of public statements during our time. Um, and, uh, including a 17 B statement, 
um, around uh, uh, promoting ICOs um, when it actually did do its trick, right? That was like one of the things we used to talk about was, you know, trying to make public statements to tell people what we're thinking, right? We said, you know, this could be violating the federal securities laws if you're getting paid and you're not telling anyone. People kind of stopped doing it. (laughs) So sometimes they work. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of that kind of transparency from, from regulators generally and from the Division of Enforcement in particular. And we've seen uh, Director Graywald doing that a little bit more in recent weeks, I think, which is, which is helpful. Yep. In addition, of course, his uh, division has brought a couple of interesting insider trading cases, uh, most notably the first of its kind, and we'll see if this is in fact a statement case, the first of its kind shadow trading case. We're going to need a sound effect. Uh, So shadow trading, uh, for those of you listening that that aren't aware of it, um, refers to a practice where corporate insiders use confidential non-public information about their company, the company they work for, uh, and then go and trade in the securities of another company, a third party, where there may be some, I, I believe the magic phrase is economic link between the companies, um, such that the person thinks that something happening at their company um, could be happening equally at another company or that it reflects a trend that could impact another company. So we, we saw one of these cases a few months ago where somebody learned something about his company, traded in another company, and the SEC said, aha, insider trading. Um, it didn't really feel like it to me, Stephanie, but I'd be interested to know your thoughts on the shadow trading theory. I think it is going to be interesting to watch this litigate. I I was glad to see it was a litigated case because I actually think that is meaningful, right? I mean, A, they're willing to, uh, to bring it and to litigate it. And, you know, as members of the public, we will get to hear the facts and we'll get a decision, presumably from a jury at some point. So I think it will be interesting um, to see what happens. I think if you're going to bring this kind of case, these are probably the best facts you were going to get to bring this kind of case. Yeah, I mean, I think it it has caused a lot of, uh, well, I mean, I hope it's caused a lot of companies go back and look at their own insider trading policies and procedures, because I think that's part of the problem in, in that particular matter is that it was written so broadly to cover an awful lot of securities trading or a lot of information. But yeah, we'll, we'll I think see. The, I, think you're, I think you're right. I think the policies, as I, I recall reading in the complaint, the policies specifically prohibited trading in closely linked companies or competitor companies or something like that. And you know, I think that's the hook probably necessary for using a misappropriation theory. Um, again, I mean, that's sort of part of the reason I say if you're going to pursue this theory, this case probably has the facts for it. Yeah, I know, uh, Kurt, we spoke at length about insider trading, I'm, I'm afraid to say it, two years ago uh, <laughs> in one of our earliest episodes of the podcast. We may need to do an update because we see this kind of slope, and that's one of the the messages that we shared in that episode, Stephanie, is that insider trading is this kind of amorphous idea that has a lot of spindles coming out of it that uh, appears the commission is exploring a new theory in what might lead to insider trading. So in that vein, do you see there a bigger takeaway about maybe the bravado or the experimentation the division's willing to take on with this shadow trading? Or or is this just more of a, of a, of a push into a new idea or a new opportunity for the commission? Yeah, I don't know that I read anything specific into this um, as much as, you know, the division was presented with a set of facts um, and, and made a recommendation that the commission accepted on this set of facts, right? What I will say is 
I do think we have seen at the end of the last fiscal year, and even after that, just taking a quick glance at the statistics from last year, I do think we've seen a greater number of litigated cases. And so, look, I think that evidence is, I'm not sure there's much you can draw from that year over year. But I do think it's fair to say, you know, the enforcement division is not afraid to litigate cases. Um, They filed what I would call a pretty decently sized number of litigated cases, uh, pursuing all sorts of theories. So I, I do think, look, they have said they're going to be aggressive, and I think they're being aggressive, and I think we'll continue to see them be aggressive. Stephanie, on a lighter note, if you've listened to some of our podcast episodes in the past, you know we always like to fire a rapid round of questions at our guests. Uh, If you tuned into last episode, I think, Kurt, I'll speak for you as well. We were a bit disappointed with an official from Robin Hood and his trivia knowledge of the legend of Robin, of Loxley, of Robin Hood. So we're hoping that you... Lucas let us down. Yeah, it was was tough. uh, I I know you're out there listening as you take your kids to daycare, Lucas. Uh, We hope, Stephanie, that you do a little bit better in the game that we've designed for you. We have talked at length, and, and you have referenced many of the public statements that you and others have made recently and in the recent past. So we're gonna see how well you do in picking out the individual speakers of some of these quotations. So Kurt's gonna lead into what the real game is, but we're gonna give you a little bit of a softball here. So let's see if you know who said this. Quote, we of course do not know the full universe of potential problem areas, but as I said earlier, rest assured that we are looking. At the end of the day, keeping the markets fair is our top priority and it should be yours too, end quote. Stephanie, who made that statement? Is there like a time? <laughs> so, all right, all right. So I'll give you, I'll give you two like hints. This was pre-pandemic, <laughs> and it took place in London. Pre-pandemic, and it took place in uh, London. Was it me? It, it was, it was me? you. I I, my my next hint was she is currently in your office. That's right. So this was a, a speech you gave. From your remarks, <laughs> what you don't know can hurt you. Provided in November of 2019, uh, across the pond. So. Thankfully, you're one for one. That's that's great. All right. Up up next, we've actually got three. Chris, I have sprinkled in I'm one excited. that you don't even know about. Oh uh, these are all uh, these are all on a theme, um, and I will I will give you a hint. There is the answers are uh, are Steve, Stephanie, and other. And if you can figure out other, oh bonus points <laughs> bonus <laughs> points right. for you. <laughs> Here's the first one. In the coming weeks, as has happened in many years, I expect to see many commenters analyze the SEC's enforcement performance over the past fiscal year and draw conclusions about the effectiveness of the SEC enforcement program based on their slicing and dicing of the various numbers. Let me be emphatic about this. My co-director and I fundamentally reject the premise that these analyses embrace, that these numbers standing alone can adequately measure the success or impact of an enforcement program. All right, that that's quote number one. Hold hold your answers to the end. Okay. <laughs> Our second quote of the day here in Steve, Stephanie, or other. Quote, many of those who closely follow the work of the enforcement division tend to evaluate its effectiveness based on metrics. These quantitative metrics are of some value in assessing the work of the division. They certainly provide a rough measure of our overall activity level, but Statistics such as these do not provide a full and meaningful picture of the quality, nature, and effectiveness of our efforts. Indeed, 
in my view, when numbers are the primary lens through which our work is viewed, that perspective can be counterproductive. So far, it all sounds like the same quote. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... God, we're boring. We're so boring. (laughs) Quote number three in the Steve, Stephanie, or other category. Here we go. I am going to anticipate your next question. The fiscal year ended just about a month ago. So what are the fiscal 2018 numbers? Nice try. The commission's enforcement program is not a television show with a season-end cliffhanger. So why are we all standing around talking about it as if it is? All right, so we've got uh, so, who was emphatic, who thinks the numbers are counterproductive, and who thinks that the enforcement is like a television program. <laughs> I think Stephanie's emphatic. I think Steve is counterproductive. And I think the chairman thinks it's a television program. <laughs> so, yes, Stephanie was emphatic. Steve, we're not going to call him counterproductive. But he was feeling like it, it, that. No, it was counterproductive. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, and the third one was actually uh, Commissioner Purse. Uh, in, you know, as only she can do, a perfectly named speech called Lies and Statistics. Oh, yes. I remember that. That's funny. All right, one more round to run by you. Uh, I'll give you another one here. We are all too familiar with the many ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed our personal and professional lives over these last several months. We are confronting new and serious personal challenges, all the while endeavoring to continue our respective professional responsibilities. The disruption and changed work environment has had, and will continue to have, a substantial impact on the activities of the Division of Enforcement. But I am gratified to report that we have continued to execute on our important mission to protect investors, promote capital formation, and maintain fair and orderly markets. Kurt, number two. All right, number two. So, back where I started. As we wrap up the fiscal year, I can say for sure that this year will not look like last year or the year before. It can't. We spent half the year enveloped by a pandemic, but what we accomplished was extraordinary. All right, so we'll give you the options here are are Stephanie or Steve. I think the first one was Steve and the second one was Stephanie. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Aced it, aced it. That's wonderful. You you know your co-director and and your cadence very well. I know, I'm so bummed about missing Commissioner Purse though. (laughs) Uh, we can edit that out. So if you just want to say, that was Commissioner Purse right now, we'll move it right back to the front. <laughs> Otherwise, you might get an email from her. She does sometimes listen That's to the right. show. That's right. <laughs> you won't fault me for getting it wrong, but Jay will fault me for thinking it was him. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that. Maybe we'll have both of you on to discuss the interpretation of that answer yeah. on a later later episode. Stephanie, we're so glad to have had you on the episode today. Thank you for joining us and talking about your experience as as a co-director and director of the Division of Enforcement, as well as your time with Wilmer Hale now. Any thoughts for for our listeners as as we move into what we can say is the next phase of enforcement with the SEC? No, no, no. Thank you for having me. This This was a lot of fun. Look, I often say that I had the best job in Washington, so it was fun to relive it for uh for just a little while (laughs) this was a good time (laughs) awesome thank you 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Stephanie Avakian of Wilmer Hale. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. Thank you.